Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to review Paul's use of Hosea in Romans chapter 9, following up on uh, my last episode dealing with Paul's use of uh, Isaiah in Romans chapter 9. So a little bit of an interesting follow-up there. If you appreciate the content of this episode and would like to support the ministry of the Freed Thinker podcast and blog, please head on over to our Patreon page and become a patron there. You can always give a one-time offer of support uh, or ongoing support, which we greatly appreciate. You can also click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog. Uh, As always, if you would like to head on over to iTunes, leave a rating or a review. I appreciate those very much as well. So with that, let's dive right into Paul's use of Hosea in Romans 9. Enjoy the show. Introduction. In the theological landscape of Protestant Christianity, some of the sharpest divisions come between broadly reformed and covenantal understandings concerning the relationship of the church to Israel with the dispensationalist view. This long-standing issue cannot be resolved in the course of this one episode, yet the goal of this present work is to show that Paul's view concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles into Israel is that it is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel given through the prophet Hosea as expressed in Romans 9.25-26. Issues examined are the historical setting of Hosea's prophecy as well as its meaning in the original context, the place and function of Hosea's prophecy in Paul's argument, and ultimately the manner in which Paul's argument illuminates our proper understanding of the church as the people of God in fulfillment of the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament. Hosea's Context Hosea served as a prophet of the Lord during the turbulent time in the life of the divided kingdom. During his ministry, approximately sometime between 786 and 726 BCE, he would have seen six different kings in Israel, four of them assassinated, and the rapid decay of the status and power of the ten northern tribes, ultimately leading to their fall and the exile of their people during the span of about 733 to 721 BCE. Hosea pulls back the curtain and reveals to his readers why God was handling his people and handling, handing them over to the Gentile kings. The Lord says that he gave Israel, quote, a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath, end quote, in 1311. It was because, quote, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land, end quote, in 4.1, that Yahweh uh, would mete out the covenant curses upon his people. 
To giving a living illustration of this, Hosea is commanded by God to take for himself, quote, a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord, end quote. That's one, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Hosea is told to name his children Jezreel to remind the house of Jehu that they would still be punished for the blood they spilled in the valley of Jezreel by putting an end to the house of Israel, chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. Her other children uh, will be called Lo Ruhamah, which means no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. In this way, God was declaring his wrathful displeasure with the house of Israel. Yet, as with many of the prophets, God was keenly interested in reminding Israel of the hope that they have as the covenant people, that God will spare for himself a faithful remnant upon whom he will restore blessing and honor when they come back into the land at the restoration. Immediately following these statements of judgment, the Lord promises hope. Not only does he remind them of the promise given to Abraham that his seed, specifically called the children of Israel in 110, would be like the sand of the seashore, but also that he will rename them yet again. While at one time Israel will be called not my people, they will be called children of the living God in chapter 110 and a cross-reference in 2.23. And those who had not been shown mercy will be shown mercy again in 2.23. Like many prophecies in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God's promises here appears to land uh, appears to land and expand in several stages throughout redemptive history. The most immediate fulfillment was the return of the children of Israel into the land. The return from exile in foreign lands was surely a partial fulfillment of the promise, and yet there is more to it than that. In 2.19, we are told that Yahweh will, quote, make for them a covenant in that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of heavens, and the creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make them lie down in safety, end quote, 2.18-19. He continues on with language of betrothal and refers to the marriage as one built on righteousness and faith in 2.19-20, a clear allusion to the nature of the new covenant and the marriage of Christ with his bride that go far beyond a simple ancient Near Eastern legal covenant into a deep and abiding love relationship. It should be no surprise, therefore, that when Paul is looking for support from previous revelation concerning the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God under the new covenant, that he finds it within the pages of Hosea. Prior Context Many scholars from previous generations have viewed Romans 9-11 through 11 as a disruption or a rabbit trail in the overall flow of Paul's epistle to the Romans. However, Schreiner points out that this has changed in today's New Testament scholarship, and for good reason. He argues that rather than being an excursus, chapter 9-11 through 11 has been considered central to Paul's entire argument of the book, and that they, quote, flow from and are necessitated by the previous chapters, end quote. This is because Paul has argued that both Jews and Gentiles are condemned under the law, both Torah and natural revelation of the demands of the law in chapters 1 and 2, thus rendered all mankind sinful and needing of mercy of God and the gift of the gospel that comes by faith in the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf, chapter 3, 23 to 25. 
This means that Jews have no salvific benefit to be found in fidelity to the works of the Torah and of circumcision, but because salvation is and always had been for people of faith, such as Abraham. This means that all who are of faith, whether Jew or Gentile, can be saved by faith apart from the keeping of the law as a prerequisite. This leads naturally to the questions in 9 through 11 concerning what is is to be made of the promises to Israel if it appears to be a greater harvest among the Gentiles than the Jews. This means that no matter what one's view is concerning the structure of the book of Romans, nearly all agree that Paul begins a transition at 9-1 to answer more directly the question regarding God's promises to Israel and if those promises have been or are being kept. Paul's answer to this question begins by affirming that the promises in the Old Covenant were indeed for Israel, and yet he clarifies that even within ethnic Israel, quote, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, end quote, 9, 6 through 7. He continues, quote, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, end quote, 9, 8. Paul will then continue to build on this distinction that even those who are children of the promise cannot claim any merit to their inclusion because it is not by their good deeds or ethnic heritage, but rather purely by the good pleasure of God and his mercy, chapter 9, verses 11, 18, and 22 to 23. Paul's argument in chapter 9 comes to a crescendo in 25 to 33 as he discusses the full inclusion of all the people of God as those whom God has mercy upon, both Jew and Gentile. This is where Paul builds the case that the Gentiles are included in the people of God because they too are included in the new covenant purely by the will and mercy of God. Here, Paul then turns back to the prophets in order to demonstrate that this is nothing new or novel with him, but rather has been in the plan of God the whole time. He will turn first to Hosea and then to Isaiah. This episode will be only concerned with the use of Hosea to demonstrate that the Gentiles are included by God's mercy into the people of God. Paul's, Paul references two passages from Hosea to make this point, Hosea 1.10 and 2.23. A proper understanding of Paul's argument at this point and his use of Hosea is vital to how one is to understand Paul's sustained thought throughout 10 through 11, culminating in the revealing of the mystery concerning the hardening of Israel, the full conversion of the Gentiles, and the salvation for, quote, all Israel, end quote, 11, 25 to 26. Previously, <clears throat> Paul refers to those who are vessels of mercy in verse 23, who have been, quote, called not from the Jews only, but also from the, in, from the Gentiles, end quote, in verse 23. In answering the question concerning the fulfillment of the promises to Israel as being fulfilled in the remnant, he appeals to the sovereignty of God and answers by reflecting on God's plan to display his justice, quote, in order to make known the riches of his glory, end quote, verse 23, to his chosen and called people. This concept of calling is vital for Paul, considering the role of the effectual call in the theology of Romans, that all those who are called will eventually be glorified, 830, including the Gentiles. Calvin tells us, quote, he now shows that the calling of the Gentiles should not be seen anything strange since it had long been foretold by the prophet, end quote. 
That Paul finds the inclusion of the Gentiles from this passage in Hosea is not something particularly contentious among scholars today. What is discussed is Paul's hermeneutic in his citation and alteration of the text to suit his purpose, and the way that this plays into dispensational divisions between the church and Israel. The manner in which Paul cites from Hosea has brought about a lot of discussion for two reasons. First, his alterations of the text to fit his purpose, and second, his application of the prophecy about Israel to the Gentiles. First, is Paul's alteration of the text of Hosea in his first citation. Beale and Carson note that Paul appears to be giving a mixed citation from Hosea 25, uh, 2.25b and 2.1, which are respectively, quote, say to your brothers Ami and to your sisters Ruchamah, end quote, and then again from 2.1, quote, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God, end quote. One of the major changes to this verse is the swapping of the terms. A reversal occurs in which Paul places the concept of being called the called people of God over them being those who received the mercy of God. Schreiner and Beale and Carson all consider the reversal to be due to Paul's interest in front-loading the concept of election calling of the people of God. Moo states it this way, quote, By reversing the order of the clauses in his quotation of Hosea 2.23, Paul is able to put this verb at the beginning of his composite quotation. The same verb comes at the end of the quotation, quote, They shall be called sons of the living God, end quote, indicating clearly where Paul's stress lies, end quote, altogether of Moo. This is clearly in line with the rest of Paul's theology in Romans where the effectual call takes primacy. This is further strengthened when it is noted that Paul appears to intentionally choose the word kaleso, which means to call, in substitute for the Septuagint term ero, which is I will say. Rather than God saying to his people that they are his people, God demonstrates that call is not simply speaking to them, but rather than that his speaking is an act of calling, an effective declaration that brings about the results that it describes. This same alteration carries through in verse 26 when Paul alters Hosea from saying, quote, they shall say, end quote, to the divine passive, quote, they shall be called, end quote. God will not merely say to Israel that they are his people, but rather he will call people to himself from all nations, tribes, uh, from Jews and Gentiles alike. What is then something striking, considering that Paul just referred to the Jews and the Gentiles, quote, as vessels of mercy, end quote, in verse 23, is that Paul omits Hosea's presentation of God's promise to show mercy to lo ruchamah, no mercy. Here, Bill and Carson attempt to resolve this by saying that Paul may be trying to avoid the clear implication that the mercy given to Israel in Hosea was a remnant to return to the land from Israel. This is probable considering that Paul here is trying to apply a prophecy originally directed at Israel to the Gentiles. Paul's primary concern here is that the status change from not my people to my people that effectively comes with the calling of God. However, while Paul does omit the mention of mercy, Beale and Carson note that essentially summarizes the context of what was intended between Hosea and his harlot bride by moving from the state of being not beloved to beloved in verse 25. 
Here, Schreiner thinks that there may be good evidence, however, that Paul was working from a manuscript tradition that contained the term beloved, rather than viewing this as another liberty that Paul took with Hosea. While this may not be a direct quote from Hosea, this is the clear intention in the context of God's relationship with Israel, moving from being the harlot bride to the beloved bride of Christ. The wife of harlotry, Israel, who has rejected and was outcast, has now become chosen and beloved, not because of anything that she had done, but merely and purely because of the good mercy and love of God. Paul's second citation of Hosea follows much more closely to the actual wording and, of the, uh, and order of the original verse. The issue here depends more so on the question of translation and manuscript tradition than of Paul's actual citation. The question surrounds the clause translated in the ESV as, quote, and in the very place where it was said to them, end quote, in verse 26. This will be vital in the discussion concerning the interpretation and application to the church further on. While some follow the ESV, others would follow P46 as, quote, wherever they shall be called, end quote. They see this as an implicit reference to the universal call of the gospel in line with the teaching of the New Testament that it goes to all the nations, tribes, and tongues. That is, that the localized reference original to Hosea, which likely refers to the Valley of Jezreel, is updated in Paul to include the global call of the Gentiles. After some review, Beale and Carson prefer the former view, while Schreiner prefers the latter. However, Schreiner also gives a helpful middle way caution when he writes, quote, Not every single word of the Old Testament citation should be forced to yield the Pauline intention, end quote. The second issue to be addressed is concerning Paul's hermeneutic. The major concern for scholars is whether or not Paul actually handles Hosea, and if he does it accurately. As already mentioned, Hosea was clearly addressing Israel and her return to the land following the exile. Here, the issues surrounding conservative and critical scholarship on the nature of revelation and the role of the divine author will go untouched, and rather a brief engagement and critique with the dispensational understanding of Paul's use of Hosea will be addressed. The most compact statement concerning the reformed understanding of Paul's use of Hosea can be found in Mu, where he writes, quote, Therefore, we must conclude that this text reflects a hermeneutical supposition for which we find evidence elsewhere in Paul and in the New Testament, that Old Testament predictions of the renewal of Israel find their fulfillment in the church, end quote. This is borne out not only throughout the book of Romans, but as Mu states, in, in, entirely throughout the New Testament. We have already noted above that Peter makes nearly this exact point from the very same Hosea text in 1 Peter 2.23. Schreiner agrees when he addresses the, ter the terms in Hosea, God's, quote, people, his beloved, and sons and daughters of the living God, that, quote, the application of these terms to the church constitutes firm evidence that the church formed the new people of God in Pauline thought. The church, is the, the church is the renewed Israel and the arena in which God promises, God's promises find their fulfillment, end quote. A vital point can also be made here. When Israel had become lo-ami, God had effectively become just like the Gentiles with respect to their standing with God. They were no longer the privileged people of God. They were now not God's people. 
Even when we understand the original Hosean context to refer to Israel, it is still vital to understand that it was only by the good grace and mercy of God that he promised to even bring back a remnant to the land. Israel as a whole was Lo-Ami, and thus the nation had no rightful claim to land or to the promises any longer. By their infidelity, they had rendered their contract with God, their covenant, null and void. God was well within his justice to, ha uh, to hand the entire nation over to be scourged and expunged. This may underlie Paul's purpose in 1 through 3, that not only are the Gentiles without fault, but the Jews are as well. Quote, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. End quote. Glennie presents three different views that various dispensational scholars have taken over time. The first is that Paul is merely using Hosea's statement as an analogy for what God is doing with the Gentiles. This view is rather problematic considering that Paul appears to be demonstrating the effectual calling of the Gentiles as nothing new or novel by showing that it had already been revealed in Hosea's time. To see this as a simple crass analogy is very unlikely. A second interpretation is that Paul is attempting to use Hosea to demonstrate a fulfillment among the Jews. This view seems deeply problematic as well, considering that Paul is attempting to demonstrate God's calling from among both Jew and Gentile. And since the citations from Isaiah that follows are far more likely referring to Israel, should we understand 25 to 26 to also be speaking of Israel, then Paul would have no way attempted to demonstrate the calling of the Gentiles that he just spoke of. In fact, it would hardly be contested that the Jews would be included in the fulfillment of the promises. And so one wonders why Paul would even feel the need to cite four different passages from two different prophets if this was his intent. The final and most likely of the three is that 25 to 26 represents a partial fulfillment of Hosea. For those like Glennie, this means that not only is the promise given to Hosea partially fulfilled in the return from the exile, but also in the calling of the Gentiles, but then ultimately in the complete salvation of, quote, all Israel, end quote, spoken of in 1126. While this is far more possible, surely the best option available to the dispensationalist, the overwhelming weight of Paul's argument throughout Romans leading up to this point mitigates against it. For Paul, the effectual call of God is for his, quote, vessels of mercy, those people that God has called out, both Jew and Gentile. This anticipates the later analogy from the olive tree in which Israel is the stock and the branches which the called Gentiles branches are then grafted into. While we should not push analogies too far, it would be strange for Paul to be arguing for the Gentiles in grafting onto the stock of Israel while also considering the church to be something distinct and entirely different. Application and Conclusion The hope of the gospel is to all people— it is vital to one's understanding of the Bible. While some may think it uncharitable, even the more robust dispensational view which removes the direct application of the Old Testament promises to the church seems to directly weaken the church's credibility to look at the whole counsel of God and rest in the promises given to them, whether to the people of God in the Old Testament or to the New Testament. All are the saints. Schreiner helpfully states, and I'll end with this quote, quote, Paul wants to show us Jewish contemporaries that the calling of the Gentiles was not without precedent. It fits with the surprising way God has always acted. 
Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Free to Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to head on over to the Freed Thinker uh, blog, uh, the Freed Thinker podcast blogspot.com. You can email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com or head on over to the group page on Facebook. Thank you again for joining. Good night and God bless.